RPGs have been around for a bit now. Uh, this year marks 50 years of Gen Con, 43 years of published Dungeons & Dragons, and as a design community, we've had almost half a century to think about this stuff. So what have we learned about how these games are made? And more specifically, for Adam and I, we're coming up on three years of podcasting. What have we, as hosts of the show, learned from talking about games and recording it? I'm Sage Latora. I'm here with Adam Linkensop, and this time another question. What have we learned about design? So this question comes from uh, some comments that we got on Twitter about, you know, it would be kind of nice if we just went into design for a bit and didn't just talk about other people's stuff entirely. Uh, and I, I worry about that a little because uh, sometimes when we talk about design, I mean, we've, we've talked about design here during lunch games, and you end up occasionally going down the road of, oh, I'm going to talk about all this stuff that I've never actually done or tried, um, or talk about this change to this game because I don't know all the context behind it, and maybe there's a really good reason that thing exists, but I just I just don't know about it. Uh, so we're going to try to avoid that here, uh, but it's really hard. Yeah, so. it's really hard. So this, this question or idea, I guess, from Ben Wright um, got us onto doing an episode more dedicated to theory, and as I was doing my notes for this episode, I actually found it harder to talk about theory divorced from specific games that we're discussing. Right. Uh, so making general points about theory was actually a, a harder question than I expected. Um, but it led to, I think, some interesting directions, uh, because talking about theory, there, there's a number of ways that we could take this. I'm actually really curious, Adam, where, where you took it. What's what's your first idea? Uh, Answer. It is, it is super, super difficult to order these. Um, I'm 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 thinking about chronological perhaps as in, as when I when I figured them out and I think the first thing that I really figured out is that designing role playing games is not like designing any other kind of game. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're designing board games or video games, it's okay. Where's my objective? Is one of the first things that you can start with, and what kinds of cool things can the person do in service of that objective, and how do they do those things? in the you know physical control sense or in the where do, what kind of pawns do I need or what kind of you know cards do I need and then I can build those cards and make things happen but role playing games like the objective is a much more fuzzy thing mm -hmm. and the components of role playing games often it often it really doesn't matter what the resolution mechanic is you know I I could play um I could play Apocalypse World with, I could play Apocalypse World with a D twenty mechanic. I could play Apocalypse World with a with a card mechanic, and it wouldn't significantly change the game enough so that obviously there's a reason. But but the game would still work because more of the game is in here is how the conversation flows mm -hmm. than here are the things that you're doing with your hands to make it the game work, right? I think that's a really interesting conversation. A few years ago at uh, PAX, we were doing Games on Demand, and we had a, a line of people outside, because it was one of the more popular time slots, and uh, people were pitching games, and one of the guys in line says, well, but is it a dice pool system, or a straight-up roll? <laughs> and that, that just blows my mind, because mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's from having a little bit of a mathematics background, but I think of those as different things that with the right ways of reading them you can map to very similar probability distributions right uh, like know. to to be totally clear you know there are there are differences between roll 2d6 and add versus roll a d20 and you know make the probabilities match by picking the ranges like 
There are differences in how they feel, there are differences in how they read, but the probability is the same, and the difference is actually really, really small, and I play a lot of games on Slack where effectively the system is uh, type, press enter, and the computer tells you what happens. Like, it's way less important than the conversation. Yeah, I know some folks are actually working on a Discord plugin to do Apocalypse World and Dungeon World moves. Um, I don't know exactly how that'll look, but doing that kind of exact thing, like this move, this stat, uh, and then it tells you the outcome or whatever. Uh, and it, the biggest difference, I think, um, I don't know if Vincent has actually said this anywhere, but my uh, guess at design has always been that part of the reason that Apocalypse World is... Uh, 2d6 is because d6s are the types of dice that you assume non-gamers have. Right. Uh, and so making it 1d20 and then setting up similar ranges and then your stat bonuses would have to be a little different to make sure that you move between those ranges in the same way. Uh, but you can you can kind of approximate it. You can hack it. Like the, there are ways there are ways to do it. But the 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 core of it being being that you approach designing other games very differently. Yeah. Like I've got I've got a Napoleon game that I'm working on where the first thing I started with is oh there's this cool card system that I can pull over and what does the history look like so that I can try to emulate it using the numbers and all of that kind of stuff where you know like Appy's written a game that took a thousand words or something and it has little numbers at all mm -hmm. and no stats and it's really okay I say some things and you say some things and and there you go like yep. how do you, where do you even start designing that kind of thing because it's fun to play with numbers and play with dice and play with cards and so those are the fun easy things that you can start with but but that's not how you make a really good RPG I think yeah and I think that uh, the theme of RPGs being different in a number of ways. It's actually going to run through quite a few of my answers, uh, our answers, because I think it runs through at least two of mine. Um, and I, I think you're, you're completely right that what we're designing for in role-playing games is uh, an experience, more or less. Uh, and in, in a more direct way, in a board game, you're designing an experience because that's what actually happens when you sit down to play it. But your primary input into that is the uh, very precise rules of how different pieces and game components interact. Whereas in a role-playing game, you're designing an experience and you're more directly pushing on that experience. I mean, there are games that uh, use kind of extra, um, extra textual things to help establish the game. There's uh, a great game um, by Paul Sega, The Valedictorian's Dead, um, which you actually need somebody's school yearbook uh, as part of it. And part of the interesting portion of the game comes from the fact that uh, this actual physical thing that was not intended for the game is providing you a lot of context. Um, and in that sense, it's more about designing the experience of you're, you're picking up somebody's uh, yearbook and looking through it and figuring out who all these people are than it is about the actual mechanics of what happens and how you figure out what happened. Um, and there there are a few board games and uh, video games that I think stretch into this. Mm -hmm. uh, there's uh, the, the game that I'm forgetting now. Um, it's a, a game about loading pawns into... Uh, railway cars and move, trying to move oh, them towards the, the end of the line and as you play through the game you realize that 
what this game is actually modeling is, is bringing prisoners to Auschwitz. Uh, and I'm blanking on the name it's of like it. It's like Train or something. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. We, it's, we'll it's, throw it in the show notes. Um, the the way that that is designing an experience is uh, in some ways m- more similar to RPGs, but that would also make a really kind of terrible RPG in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm not saying that that's the way you design, but that... that train, yeah, it's called train. Train. Uh, that, that concept of designing the entire experience, uh, of guiding, of giving people the tools. I don't think even guiding is the right word. Giving people the tools for creating something in their own setting uh, is much more common in RPGs than it is in, in really any other kind of field. Yeah, the, I mean, the board games and video games that come out, well... I mean, there's there's also, well, the board games that come out like this tend not to be, I'm going to make this so that people can play it. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the RPGs that are made about this kind of stuff, like Night Witches, are very much about being played. Um, I mean, there are certainly RPGs, like there's a zero-player RPG uh, that somebody was talking about on Twitter the other day, I think Katie, um, I can't remember her last name, um, that that is obviously an art piece more more than a particular role playing game, but but I mean that's cool that you can do that kind of thing. But I think in general, RPGs like uh, at least the modern story gamey type of movement likes to build games about really weird things that don't tend to get covered with as much gravitas mm-hmm. in board games. Like uh, you know you've got Fallout for video games and you've got. Uh, lots of post-apocalyptic board games that don't make you feel the same way about an apocalypse like Apocalypse World does. I, I think that your point there about uh, this being a modern design school thing to a specific kind of school of design, I actually don't think that's the case. Uh, I think you're right that that school of design tends to go maybe more with gravitas, but I actually think that the in some ways the fundamental invention of RPGs is designing the entire experience of, uh, of play. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily in like these high-level constraints of, you know, find, find a yearbook to influence your play. But if you look at um, some of the fundamental shifts in D&D, they were about putting yourself into the shoes of one person and the entire experience of that, not just of this person being my pawn, but uh, you making... Um, from their point of view, right. choices. Uh, and there's a little bit of precedent there with, with mail order games and uh, arbitrated uh, war games. But I, I really think that the, the thing you're getting at here of uh, the design being different is actually kind of where RPGs des- yeah, diverge. The, the, the point of it being different is, I think, just a general point about role-playing game design. And I mean, you know, War game design is slightly different than normal board game design because you have historical precedent that you can go for. Um, but RPG design is super, super different. Where do you want to start with your points? Oh, sure. Uh, so when I think of theory, um, I tend to go to previous discussions of theory in, in the RPG space. Um, and so my first kind of thing that I've learned about design is that there's... Uh, I have a, a theory of infinite theories. Um, there's... Uh, I think a tendency to focus on uh, theory and RPGs with um, particularly Ron Edwards' work, the the GNS theory um, and, and his work. But I actually th- feel like uh, 
there are a lot of kind of theoretical bases that you can have to how you look at gaming. Um, and, and even calling them theory, I, I want to challenge the premise of our question here a little bit. Do it. That uh, when we talk about theory, I feel like people end up uh, associating that with theory in maybe more of a um, like mathematical or, or scientific sense as opposed to like a theory of um, as like a, a school of critique or a kind uh, of a prescriptive versus descriptive type of thing kind of yeah like yeah, yeah. I, I see a lot of people uh, I, I actually don't put a lot of stake in in GNS uh, which I'll explain a little bit more in a minute but so talk about GNS really quick. That's the thing I just said I'll do in a minute. But uh, I'll do it now. Yeah, because if we're going to keep using the acronym, we need to... Sure. Uh, so GNS is is probably the most common thing that when people talk about a theory in RPGs, they're, they're talking about. Um, GNS stands for uh, Gamist Narrativist Simulationist, uh, which is a way of looking at the things that people look for in role-playing games, basically. So Gamist is uh, more about... RPGs as a, a, like a challenge, a, a game that can be won and lost. You can make a character who is able to beat challenges that others wouldn't, and you go and, and try to beat the challenges. Narrativist is more about uh, you're looking for an interesting story or, or plot. Uh, you maybe are influenced by things like TV and movies and trying to emulate some of those. Um, and Simulationist is trying to uh, create a game that matches up to a real or imagined situation and emulates it as, as properly as possible and that creates appropriate outcomes for that situation and those constraints. Um, the the part of the reason that I don't put much stake in it is because I think it gets uh, misused pretty broadly. These things often get turned into a kind of I'm a I'm a gamist player or I'm a simulationist player or anything. Uh, I don't know that I can speak for Ron's intent, but I've found for that these are more like things that people look for in games to varying degrees and it varying amounts over time. I don't think there's anybody who looks for only one of these in a role-playing game, because I think all of them together are part of what makes role-playing games their own special thing. Uh, and the, your priorities on these things, I think, shift drastically from even moment to moment within the same game. Um, certainly over time, between games, or you know, over your, your lifespan as a gamer. Uh, and so it's not so much that I feel the theory is... Um, completely wrong or inaccurate so much as uh, I think it provides uh, a crutch for for not very productive critiques of games. Um, and in some ways it, it can get hoisted by its own petard because uh, people see this and sometimes bucket themselves and then point out all the ways that the bucket they put themselves in isn't accurate about them or something. Um, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm a gamist, but I, I like the to tell the stories that came out of our game afterwards, which is not really conflicting the theory, but uh, so I, I would, uh, there are other theories. I would actually call um, OSR uh, kind of a theory of game design, um, especially when we talk about it more as like a uh, a theoretical basis, like a school of design. Yeah, this is um, kind of old school rules is the acronym here. Uh, yeah, sorry, uh, another acronym. OSR, old school renaissance or re uh, revolution sometimes. Old school R. Yeah, old school R, uh, <laughs> which is, uh, there's a number of 
substreams in it, but broadly, uh, a school of design and play and critique based around appreciating uh, older role-playing games, which is funny because that that overlaps pretty drastically with uh, the indie GNS RPG scene, who also often really appreciate old-school role-playing games. Um, and so, like, in that sense, the I think we're going to keep on seeing more people have these kind of theories. They probably won't always be called theories because they're more like schools of design, and that's good. They're all lenses that we can look at gaming through. Okay, so there, there's the word right there, um, is lenses. And yes. I think, so, that, you know, we've had this conversation offline quite a lot about uh, what what the heck is theory even good for, right? Because mm-hmm. um, there's there's the, there's the uh, universal myth um, kind of theory for um, what is a hero with a thousand faces? Yes. That is, this is not how you write a story. It is a it's a general outline. Like okay, we've got the hero gets the call and leaves and enters the other world and meets with doom and then returns with a boon and whatever. Uh, but you don't write a story by just fleshing that out. What you do is you write your story, and then you go, you know, there's something screwy about this story, and it doesn't feel right. What do I, you know, why doesn't it feel right? And then you look at all these things to try and find the, the thing that's missing, mm-hmm. you know, to give you prompts and ideas and whatever. Um, and I think that that's, that's the way that I like to look at stuff like GNS, is I built my game, okay, but the, it doesn't feel right to me. Why doesn't it feel right to me? Oh, it doesn't feel right to me because the entire thing is just a simulation. And you don't get to make any really interesting decisions like a game. And it doesn't really produce an interesting story like a narrative. So all I really have is the simulation part. So maybe I could, I could find some pieces that I could you know, manipulate to make it work more like these other two things. Um, there's two other theories that I love to use for this kind of stuff. Uh, one of which is, is if you follow me at all, you probably heard me mention eight kinds of fun, uh, which is just the idea that people come to games for different experiences. Um, and it frustrates me to no end watching reviews by people who say, you know, I don't, uh, I don't like this game. It's a bad game. Full stop. You know, let's throw it out. When it's like, well... You know, it's not very much of a good puzzle, and you might not have as much strategy, but it looks like it's going to be a great time for people just want to sitting around and, and talk to each other, uh, which is a kind of fun, you know. Or maybe this game is just beautiful on the table, uh, but it doesn't have very much strategy. So it's going to appeal more to people who want to see amazing things on the table and less to people who don't care about that thing and just want to have really, really good strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Um and, and knowing that there are different kinds of fun is both an out to allow you to say, look, I just don't care about making it pretty on the table. I'd much rather care about, uh, I don't know, producing a crazy narrative. Uh, but it also lets you say, oh, I understand why this person doesn't like it because they care about things that I don't care about. Mm-hmm. Or I understand why this person really likes it and I don't because mm-hmm. they care about things I don't care about. I think that your, your point there uh, is actually, in some ways, a, a bigger uh, cultural point of we, we're in a very connected world where everybody can review everything, and uh, it's easy to lose track of the fact that, that effective critique is uh, definitely a skill, and it's not something 
it's not the same as just having your thoughts about something. An actual good reviewer is not just somebody who uh, has an opinion about things because that's everybody. Right. It's somebody who can articulate and do that within uh, a structure where they both uh, understand other people's ideas and communicate their own. Um, and having a framework for that, in some ways that that is the idea of theory as well. All of these theories of game design is mm-hmm. to help give you ways to um, in which to base a critique. Uh, and I mean, practically, that I think we see that in addition to the kind of big ones right now, which are whatever, indie games, NOSR, uh, I, I can't believe I just had to say those. Uh, <laughs> I, I really hate to drawing those as, as different camps because I think the, the reality is they are significantly overlapping groups and lenses that people use uh, to help guide their design and many people use both sets of lenses at different times. Yeah, we but, just uh, want to make good games, right? There, there was one other piece of theory that I wanted to talk about oh, sure. very quickly. Okay, yeah, and then I'll get back to my point. Which kind of predates Eight Kinds of Fun, and it's, uh, I think it's Richard Bartle's um, types of players. Do you know about this thing? I don't think so. Um, it's So in the 80s and 90s when the mud scene, kind of multi-user uh, online games, was kind of getting started in, in a big way, uh, Richard Bartle ran a mud or, or was heavily involved in one and was looking at how to fix several weird player dynamics that kept coming up. Uh, and he categorized people into four major player groups, uh, which match the suits of a deck, which makes it easier for me to remember. <laughs> um, not very well, but whatever. There's the socializers, the hearts, uh, who they don't really particularly want to play the game like you would normally think of the game. They want to get online and just hang out with people and talk to the other people that are playing and, oh, I'm getting online because my friend Sarah's online and, you know, I need to hang out with her for a bit. Uh, so the socializers, the the uh, explorers, I can't remember what suit they had for that one, uh, where I want to see what crazy things they put in the game and what crazy abilities they put in the game and what's new over here and I haven't been to this room yet and can I break this thing so I can get behind this wall that shouldn't be get behind? Um, the, uh, whatever he calls the game, the, the achievers, I think, which is I'm going to get the most skill points and the most experience and I'm going to beat this thing, I'm going to beat that thing and I'm going to win against the game. And then the killers who are... I'm going to screw all you guys over, and I'm going to kill that person as they show up, and I'm going to get experience from killing this thing, and I'm going to win against the players. Mm -hmm. So the reason for that theory at all is so that you can take the game and say, this game is going to spiral out of control because there are too many killers in the game, and they're going to make it not fun for the socializers because that's what he found the dynamic went. And if the game doesn't have enough content or places to go, it's not going to be fun for the explorers, so they'll leave. And if the game doesn't have enough uh, skill cap, it's not going to be enough fun for the achievers. But if there's too much killers, that pulls the socializers away, which means the achievers don't have anybody to shoot. Like, mm-hmm. all of these different player groups interact with each other. And I think that's the great thing about theory, is that if you build theory for the purpose of something, so I'm building my game and I want to look at it from a critique angle, or I'm building a big multiplayer experience and I need to know how multiple groups are going to be interacting and screw with each other over the course of this experience, that's a much better long-term useful theory Mm -hmm. than one that is 
oh, you know, I'm just going to put a big category around this thing. Uh, I can't use the category for anything, but I now have a, a label for it. And labels are great because it's useful to be able to refer to things, but ideally you can you can get something out of it right? Yeah. instead of just a short sentence for conversation. Yeah, and I think that's, that's spot on. Um, and I, I think that there's that when you look at theories of game design in that way, you can actually see them cropping up a lot more places because um, I think you do actually see uh, the the underlying kind of theoretical bases of a lot of kind of trends in gaming. I think there is like a, a theoretical design basis to uh, like the the White Wolf surge in the '90s, early 2000s. Um, there's there's underlying theories to a lot of these. I think that the the reason that theory gets associated with GNS in particular is because that's the one that gets articulated the most as a theory. Um, everything else are kind of left unstated for the most part. Um, but it's interesting to have more theories to base it around. Like I would, I would love to see more RPG designers looking at some of these other types of theories that you're talking about because this is actually news to me in a lot of ways uh, and it's interesting to hear about the types of players because the explorer thing I was sitting here nodding like that's the way I play so many games and then I thought about the video game that I've played the most probably over the last year which is Towerfall which I have literally played every level and every combination because it's, it's a multiplayer game there's only so many levels uh, I've done the solo stuff as well I, I've seen literally everything in that game I've explored every moment of it and I still play it multiple times a week, uh, which I think leads to the understanding of theories that we're talking about, that this it's a great lens to look at, but you don't want to uh, use it reductionistly to, to turn it into, oh, I'm an exploration player. Right. Uh, that's, that's all I need to look at, because even for me, that isn't true. Like, I, there are plenty of games that I, I think that's my default mode, but all those things are true to me to varying degrees. Yeah, yeah, that's so the eight kinds of fun thing is a outgrowth of it. Oh mm -hmm. man. Yeah, I could talk about theory all day. So my well, that's my second podcast. My second my second piece is a bit of theory uh, -huh. uh that I'm not sure if somebody has a, a nice little name for this, I'd love to give it a nice little name. Is that in RPGs I feel like you need to trust people to fill things in. Mm -hmm. Um like giving giving somebody so much detail that they don't have any uh, gray area to move out into is is not a good idea. So you need to trust people to fill things in, but also help them to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that this is the genius of of random tables and and option lists and and just the idea of injecting randomness into here and then making something happen that also gives you a whole bunch of room to twist it. Mm -hmm. uh, I was playing Tenra uh, Monday night, Tenra Bandage Show Zero, and uh, with a group that had never played it before, and so I got to introduce them to the Emotion Matrix, mm -hmm. uh, which is the first time that you meet somebody important, and I do it whenever PCs meet PCs because it's just a wonderful thing. Uh, you roll on this 36-entry table, and it tells you how you react. Uh, you're allowed to move it around, and in fact... Um, in his designer notes, I think Andy Katowski, the translator, uh, mentioned that 
you should be moving it around much more than American audiences tend to. Mm -hmm. um, we tend to look at it as a challenge. Oh, I got love at first sight? Awesome! I'm going to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Even though that doesn't make any sense, I'm going to make it happen. <laughs> uh, and he said, you should really, you know, don't, don't worry about moving it around a little bit. Um, and my group didn't want to move it around at all, so that was, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, but it's just so cool to see, here's like a one, two, three word description of your relationship with this person on the fly, make it make sense, go, uh, and then just let people run with it. Mm -hmm. And RPGs can do that because of the flexibility and because of my point one, um, where normal games can't. Like if we were playing a board game and the board game was just like, hey, you know, this thing happens, make it make sense in the board game. It'd be like, well, you know, how does that interact mechanically with this other thing? And, you know, does that, does that mean that I have an advantage in endgame scoring, or what mm -hmm. component can I use to mark this thing? Not that you can't do narrative in board games, but it's much harder to do where it matters yeah. like it does in role-playing games. I think that's a really great theory point, and I'm glad that you have some like concrete theories, because mine are all almost meta-theories. <laughs> uh, but the, the example that made that click for me, um, the example that I at least heard it from, uh, John Harper had... I was talking with him, and he had an example of playing, uh, I believe he said it was GURPS or Shadowrun in high school, and uh, being in the situation where like, you, you fire a ridiculous weapon at somebody in a situation where you're sure to hit them, but based on the rules, you still roll damage, right. and it doesn't kill them. And uh, depending on kind of where you are as a player of RPGs, you either look at that and say, well, that doesn't make sense. I should have killed him. These rules suck. Or you look at it and say, oh, so obviously what happened there is that, you know, my my gun misfired or you, you adapt to the fiction, you, you use that as a springboard. Like springboard is what I tend to, the things that you're talking about there, the stuff that helps you and demands that you fill in stuff, I tend to refer to as springboards. Um, especially, I'm a big fan of ones that are somewhat... Um, provocative and make people do things uh, because the you know fill in uh, where you're from on the map is a really bland and open-ended prompt and you don't get a lot of interesting answers uh, whereas if you make that a more directed question or make it something that people kind of want to weasel their way out of you get much more interesting answers um, there's there's a ton of these in Dungeon World and Bonds and even in the nameless that people still pick on uh, I saw somebody just the other day complaining that uh, if you were putting your own names in Dungeon World or an Apocalypse World you weren't played by the rules as written which is technically true but like in so a, what? Yeah. <laughs> in, a, in the same way that all interpretations of a game are almost always going to get something wrong um, but the, the point being that by having an actual list of names that is presented right in front of the character, players, they don't have to go looking in the book or something, or by having bonds or HX that tell you that something is true but leave enough room for you to define facts that flip it on its head or something, mm -hmm. uh, all that creates an environment where the you have to say things and you you are there's a demand that you contribute something um, without you having to think about that too much, and it's it's so baked into gaming. Once you look at all of the the fictional to um, mechanical mappings that are such a key part of, of RPGs, this is 
it's kind of a, a fundamental thing that you're having to um, feed back and forth between these two things. You you invoke rules based on this fictional situation we've all agreed on, and then those dictate things that actually happen in the fiction, at least in, in most functional RPGs. Well, it's, I think part of this is also the squad leader versus com combat commander problem. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's two big camps in <laughs> at least World War II tactical board gamers, uh, which, <laughs> yeah, how, how niche can I get here? Um, that are the advanced squad leader people who want a game that they can play uh, as well as possible. You can look at an advanced squad leader situation, and in fact, that they've got these in the rule book and they've got these online where you say, okay, given this situation, what are the best possible moves uh, for you know an average set of rolls of dice? Mm -hmm. um, ASL basically uses a 2D6 mechanism for a bunch of stuff, and it has rules for basically every situation. Uh, and it's you know you keep them in a big manual. It's practically a role playing game, old school style. Uh, and you move your squads around, and I say, well, I'm going to move here, and then I'm going to move here, and that is the best thing for me to do, and I can always do that. Combat Commander, you have a hand of cards that gives you the orders that you're allowed to do and the reactions that you're allowed to do, and your opponent does, too. So in a particular situation, you might not be able to move your people. Mm -hmm. uh, you might not be able to shoot at your opponent. You might not be able to call down artillery. Uh, Maybe next turn you will, maybe next turn you won't. Maybe there's three turns where you're spending time discarding so that you can look for that one move card that you can get to enter the building and, and take them out. I love Combat Commander. Because Combat Commander, I can say, oh man, come on guys, why can't you just get there? Uh, oh, they must be just scared in the ditch, or you know, maybe somebody's weapon malfunctioned for a couple turns, or maybe they just didn't see them. Maybe, I, maybe what's going on? And then when I'm moving across the field, I'm like, oh, does the other person have a fire card? I hope they don't have a fire card. Um, some people hate combat commander because they're like, why, why don't my? I kind of move my guys. I should be able to move my guys. You know, I'm looking at the map. I can see them. I should move my guys. And obviously they're going to shoot at me because, of course, they see me. I'm running across the field. They should be able to shoot me. What's wrong with this game, right? And those two groups are, are Vim Emacs-style holy wars in, uh, to get uh, far more nerdy. Uh, we uh, may be going like <laughs> explain our obscure references with even more obscure <laughs> references. Uh, deep show notes today. Um, those, those two groups are... are are very much at odds in in wargaming and it, and games that are that are that appeal to one group will tend to not appeal to the other group as much um, and I think that that does have a lot here like it you if you want to explain the system if you, if you're looking for ways to explain what happened in terms of the overall narrative uh, combat commander is wonderful but if you're looking to impose your narrative on the game ASL is a lot better. Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting way to look at it because now I'm thinking about games that uh, end up somewhere in the middle with like a uh, your your card abilities are typically cool things, uh, but there's a certain set of default abilities that you can like spend cards into. For example, mm -hmm. uh, the coin games just something a little bit like this, where you you your special options are limited by cards, but your Typical options are always on the table in, in one way or another. Um, well, it's a, lot, it's a lot like the the 16 hit point dragon, yeah. right? The the idea that in Dungeon World there is a move that is hack and slash, 
you can interpret that in many different ways. And if you're coming from a D&D background, you will often interpret, based on experience with lots of people playing Dungeon World, you will interpret that as, this is the move for me to hit something. Mm -hmm. And that's not exactly what it is. It is the move for when you are able to get into melee combat with something, which means that sometimes you're not going to be able to use it. And, and understanding that there is a difference there can be very, very difficult. If you're coming from a system where, oh, I want to swing my sword at that thing, so I do this, as opposed to, can I swing my sword at that thing? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the 16 HP dragon is an especially interesting example of this uh, because I just recently saw somebody mention it um, with respect to uh, episode four of the current season of Game of Thrones, which had uh, a dragon in it. Uh, I'll save any more spoilers, spoilers than that. There, there's dragons in Game of Thrones, folks. <laughs> uh, but the this particular episode reminded some people of that post, um, which in this context, I'm starting to think, well, depending on which uh, kind of theory background you want to interpret that from, maybe we're looking at a gamist narrative simulationist thing where if you're looking for simulation of being able to say, I swing my sword, what things does it hit? Uh, It's not fulfilling that, but if you're looking for something that reminds you of an episode of Game of Thrones, uh, which otherwise Dungeon World is is not really the game for, it doesn't do any of the the (laughs) Game of Thronesy stuff, but, you know, this particular fight, uh, maybe it fits that. That isn't actually how I think of it as a designer, but that's a lens that you can look at it through and help interpret the game and and how it's designed. Um, yeah, uh, I really like your specific theory points. My, my second one is, again, another meta theory point, which, uh, especially given the talk of uh, niches and uh, super obscure references that we'll have to have show notes to help explain our explanation take, of obscure groups. It's going to take me um, forever in production. <laughs> uh, I think the the second kind of meta-theory point that I've learned is um, the audience is bigger. Uh, The theory tends to um, have this idea of, like, navel-gazing and kind of like a a smoking jacket and pipe pursuit where we sit around in our study and and discuss the merits of things. Um, But I think that a lot of this theory actually helps us... uh, understand the gaming audience and see how big an audience it is. Um, There's, I I try not to be too uh, gung-ho about tabletop gaming growing, because I don't think that's actually really an important thing or requirement, but it is really cool that Gen Con sold out in Indianapolis. Uh, The size of Gen Con is absolutely ridiculous, and the amount of, that interest traces back to um, I think a number of like larger social factors, but also the fact that we're we're learning to design games and get them to the right people in more effective ways. Um, you know, Dungeons and Dragons is this kind of uh, chance combination from all the right people coming together to grow something out of war gamings and postal uh, war gaming and postal games. Um, it it started with this. Somewhat narrow audience because how do you how do you even explain this new thing to new people? And if you look at the original uh, white books, like there's there's 
some confusion as to like what this game actually is uh, from people reading them. Um, and the, I think one of the the larger things that theory has given us is ways of looking at audience and their interaction with games, um, because the audience is always intertwined with design. Like we're we're not designing. Uh, a, a probe to shoot into space where our, we're, we're designing around the laws of physics, our primary thing as designers or people critiquing design is the actual experience of play and the audience that plays them because uh, RPGs are a particularly interpreted kind of entertainment. You know, a, a book, until somebody reads it, they don't have an opinion on it, but the book still exists in the same way before being read. Whereas a role-playing game, not only do you have to play it to understand it in practice, but it doesn't really exist until it is played. Mm -hmm. uh, their, their procedures, the fact that they get sold as books is just a, a convenient way to describe those procedures. Yeah, there's. Uh, I think John started. John Harper started this conversation on Twitter about reviewing role-playing games... Uh, based on just the book, based on the book and a bit of a play, based on the book and a campaign of play, based on how much how much of an experience do you have of the play of this game versus the book itself. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a weird thing to talk about. Like, if somebody posted a board game review, and people do this based on just reading the rules, I, I would delete it or block it or like it's it's completely worthless for board gaming uh, I can I can I can read my own rules that's fine uh, but knowing how something plays just on the rules is practically impossible mm -hmm. uh, you can have a an idea you'll probably be wrong um, I've had way too many times where I've written rules thinking that they'll work one way and then played it and it worked a totally different way uh, or not at all. Yeah. Um, not you know for for role playing games. I think there is more use in. I, I'm much more on on Bree's. Uh, I think Bree Sheldon, mm -hmm. Bree Sheldon side here, where I like a review of a role playing game book because there's so much in the book that is not that is useful by itself. Like I have a ton of role playing books that I've just read and not played mm -hmm. because I like. I like seeing what other people have to say about playing these games because a board game rulebook will tend to be, you know, here's our general mechanisms and it won't tell you very much about how they all come together. Whereas a role-playing book will tell you a lot of stuff about what the game is actually about narratively and where is your starting point and how much of this game is going to be taken doing particular things. Like if half of the role-playing game book is for example, spells, and the other half is all combat, then I'm gonna, I know what most of the time in that role-playing game is gonna be about. Mm -hmm. uh, if most of the role-playing book is about the setting, and then there's like two pages about how you can build something that works in the setting, I know what this role-playing game is gonna be about. Yeah. Um, I'm not gonna know exactly how it plays, but I feel, still think that the, the book review is much more interesting. Yeah, I think that there's there's space for that. Um, it's another place where the best comparison I can come up with for role playing games is actually uh, like a recipe book. Like yeah, there's there's something to be had from reviewing a recipe book, even if you haven't uh, cooked any of the recipes for reviewing 
A, how, how useful is it? Like, are these recipes that you can look at and understand uh, without having even attempted them? And then also from the, you know, are there useful tips and tricks in there that you might want anyway? Does it inspire you to want to do this kind of cooking? Um, I love that metaphor. a really complete review still has to actually say, and I cooked this stuff and it made sense while I was doing it and the food was good. Right. Uh, because if you haven't reviewed how you can actually, you know, sometimes instructions look really good on the page, and then you read them, and it turns out that, you know, step three is actually 12 sub-steps. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a recipe for chili that I got online that I really like. It's like my chili recipe now, but step three is seriously, basically, make chili. Yeah. Like, there's... Uh, there's <laughs> finish the rest of the owl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finish the rest of the owl on the how to draw an owl. Like, three circles, now draw an owl. Uh, that, that's how this recipe kind of goes. Jeez. And, like, it, it has a lot of detail, but it's all in this one huge block of text. And if, you know, if I was reviewing it as uh, a cookbook, uh, it, I would both point out that it's a really good chili recipe. It's flexible. You can do lots of things with it. It's great. But the presentation isn't very good, and that's important because if I was paying money for this as opposed to you know getting it free online, I'd probably care a little bit that it's a kind of a pain to follow. Um, yeah, and I think that this this idea of uh, role playing texts and the audience for them and the interaction there um, leads to a lot of interesting designs. Last night I played uh, All Men Must Die, which is um, Paul Riddle hacking his own game on dying for Game of Thrones, basically. Um, the the PDF is you know Games of Thrones esque, and last night we we just literally decided to play straight up Game of Thrones. So we uh, you know changed history a little bit. We've got Thoros of Mir and Lady Stoneheart running around with some other bandits uh, in a little area of geography that we made up. But um, the the fact that our theoretical understanding of gaming um, helps guide us towards these niches. Like mm-hmm. I, I think that. The this is another place where I think the word theory is so is too narrow because I think that the uh, if you think of theory as more of a um, like an ethos of design uh, kind of then a lot of those do guide how you approach these and how you find those niches and it it creates games that fill certain roles for certain people and that these games are um, thanks to kind of the theory behind them. Uh, more and more, I think, shareable, and that feeds back into the audience being bigger. Because if you look at, uh, you know, if I had to guess at some reasons why Gen Con is is selling out for, I believe, the first time in Indianapolis, uh, it's partially due to the fact that there's all this online streaming that gets people back engaged with games because they can see these cool artifacts of play, uh, and it, it loops back into the design theory and ethos of. Um, creating games that that meet people where they are, kind of. Uh, and I think that's, I mean, if we're talking about a theory of design, that is design. It, it's uh, crafting something that meets people's needs and desires. Um, and having theories to guide that uh, is a really key thing that I think has helped RPGs uh, grow over time. I really like that point because it leads to my primary wonderful core super important point, which is community is essential. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is bigger than game design because there's all sorts of research that says the thing that will tend to make you the most happy in life overall is ha- relationships. Like strong, stable, safe relationships 
are the most important thing to being a human being. Mm -hmm. uh, and speaking as a hyper introvert, uh, even even I need my relationships, right? Oh, that's really. I want to jump in like two things there before you even get to the, Do all it, your go. other great points. Uh, because first of all, I would have not pegged you as an introvert. You are one of the uh, most like outgoing and open and inviting uh, like hosts for uh, events or even just you know sitting down to play a board game in a neutral space of anybody that I know. Uh, and uh, I. I to, to go slightly off topic for the podcast, Adam and I see each other in social situations as well. And uh, so my wife has met many of my nerdy friends, and Adam is easily one of the ones that uh, is, she has warmed up to the most because occasionally my nerdy friends are a little tough to, to get to know. So uh, it's interesting that you're an introvert, and I know that that boils down to kind of like where your energy is from. I can see you being very good at being an extrovert, but that not being... Uh, but that being draining. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I get I get lots of alone time. So that's really interesting. And the other thing that I wanted to, to bring up there, um, the relationship thing, is something that's, that's been on my mind a lot. Uh, I recently read an article uh, that I'll, I'll try to link from the show notes, even though we're getting a little far off of our, our typical range of things. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, about how, um, like, a culture of, uh, of kind of how we raise boys... Um, tends to devalue strong friendships mm -hmm. and combined with the research that having these strong, stable relationships is really key to people's longevity and well-being, uh, we, we tend to, to kind of cripple people in our society by, uh, especially around maybe high school age, kind of telling them that the way to, to grow up is to not have as many close friends and that it's you know weird if you're too close with your your friends of the same sex yeah uh, it's it's a it's a really sad ongoing social thing uh the amount of loneliness is, well, i mean at least at least where we are in our personal experience and so on and so on um but to roll it all back to game design uh i was i started my list tonight with a couple of things that I felt like it was super hard to do that I've learned about design. Mm -hmm. um, like, it's really, really hard, but crucial to call something done. Yes. To get to the point where you say, okay, it's not perfect, but I'm releasing it, and it's a thing now. And it's really, really hard to play test something, to say, here's my thing that I made, and it's my little baby. Uh, play it and tell me what you think and you won't think it's perfect because it nothing is perfect mm -hmm. and I'm going to be very sad about that um, but both of those things don't mean anything unless you have a community of people yeah like uh, it's blind playtesting is is really 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 hard um, but even playtesting you know playtesting with people that you have relationships with is a little bit easier but you have to have those relationships. Even for blind testing, you need to have relationships with somebody to get it out there. Mm -hmm. You can't call something finished if you're not calling it finished to somebody. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you, you've got to have community. And I love the role-playing game and the board gaming community in general. Um, because, you know, even though this audience is getting bigger and we're going to get to the eternal September point, some point, where... There are when when a community gets big enough, the amount of jerks in it gets big enough that it's just a pain. Um, but yeah, so far it's it's a wonderful, wonderful place. Yeah, uh, I I agree that the community growing comes with its its own uh, challenges, and is part of why I'm I'm excited to see 
gaming getting bigger in some ways, but I also wouldn't mind if it stays the little niche hobby that it does. I mean, it's it's a big enough hobby that, you know, even in a, a mid-sized town, you can usually find some place that carries a few role-playing games. You know, a, a major bookstore will at least have a few D&D books, typically. Uh, and, you know, Amazon is everything these days. Uh, and, like, finding a, a group of people isn't too hard. Um, it was actually really interesting for me. I, I was doing a um, talk for... Our, our day job in, in software engineering. And uh, I had written up a little bio that I didn't know they were going to read before I gave my talk, which mentioned that I designed an award-winning role-playing game, co-designed. Uh, and the number of people who came up afterwards because they had immediately Googled my name, figured out it was Dungeon World, and were Dungeon World fans is roughly equal to the number of people who were excited about the technical content of my talk. <laughs> uh, and it was still a well-received talk. Like, that's that's not low-balling. And, like, people seem to really like the talk. And an equal number of people were like, you wrote Dungeon World? Go wrote. Uh, it was a really interesting experience. And, like, that having community uh, yeah. and knowing that that community stretches more places. Like, I think that's my point with the audience being bigger. Like, the the... Theory, theory's intersection with people mm -hmm. is is where it matters. Totally, um, and I think that the in in a lot of ways we're talking about what design is. Um, I'd, I'd really recommend. There's a podcast, uh, 99 Invisible by Roman Mars, uh, which I'll try and show, throw in the show notes. Um, Thank you. Uh, you better not say that. I, I have a kid, and I've been listening to Moana's soundtrack a lot, so I'm going to start <laughs> singing your welcome. Uh, I'll hold myself for now, but 99% Invisible is all about design across a number of fields. Anything from uh, the the signs they made for the Olympics to help people get around in a language they didn't understand um, to uh, the design of the stethoscope. Um, all these things, and, and looking at design as this everyday thing uh, that it, it's important because of how it interacts with people, and there are a number of kind of theoretical backgrounds you can start from and still effectively design to mm -hmm. uh, is I think that we need more of that spirit of design in role-playing games because uh, part of go back to my original point my, my concern about theories is that they can become these um, pedantic this is the only way to do this this is the only way to look at it uh, whereas the the 99% invisible their their kind of shows uh, approach is that there are many, many ways to design, and design is absolutely everywhere. They they have uh, shows about um, brutalist architecture, the, the use of yeah. like concrete everywhere, and uh, like every there's always an appreciation for the hows and whys of design. Um, and even once you appreciate that design is everywhere, even unintentionally, um, you can also look for the anti patterns in design. There's there's a lot of stuff that they talk about where design is unintentionally discriminatory. Um, and I, I think we need to look at that in RPGs as well. Once you start thinking about design, a theory, since that's our topic, but the theory of design as, as something that you apply to communities and that intersects with people, uh, you start to see these, these patterns in the things that design produces. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's a lot of push, you know, speaking of discriminatory design, there's a lot of push in board games to make sure that your game works for colorblind people. Mm -hmm. um, because it's really easy when you want to signify differences in components uh, to be like, well, I have nine differences, so I'll use nine different colors, uh, two of which are completely indistinguishable to me, who doesn't have color blindness, if there's a little bit of low light. 
and <laughs> half of them are indistinguishable if you have, you know, one of the really common forms of colorblindness. And so uh, I think Daniel Solis does a really good job um, on his just general discussion online about how to make sure that you have multiple signifiers showing that something is is different, not just color. Um, and it's Shape just being a common one to to tack on there, right? Some other symbols, some additional font changes, or whatever. Um, and I think, uh, uh, and the new printing of innovation does this really well as well. And I think that it, the thing that's really interesting about this is that it was driven primarily by how can we appeal to this additional audience. But those changes make the games much easier for me to play too. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the changes that make it less discriminatory in general tend to open up, especially role-playing games and story and narrative-driven games, up to different locations and places and, and, and cool things that we can realize about the world that we would never have seen if we continued playing you know, a very small bubble of games. There was a, uh, there's a podcast I listened to called uh, uh, Three Moves Ahead, and they were talking about this game called Battle Brothers, which is a, you know, cool XCOM-y tactical, uh, tactical computer game. And their, one of their bigger complaints about it was that all of the people in the game were white males. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while they had a little bit of complaint to the effect of, you know, it'd be nice if I could just play with different people... Um, the bigger, the biggest part of it was I can't tell who is who when I'm zoomed out on the battlefield, and if I had you know uh, black people on my team, or if I at least had women that had different hair colors or hair hair lengths or whatever, that would be enough for me to at least tell the difference between who's on the field. Um, and it's just a really interesting set of assumptions that sometimes. You know, you don't need to make it different because you want to appeal to a small audience. You want to make it different because it actually is going to help a lot of people. Yeah, I, I think that's a really... The, the number of reasons that making games more inclusive uh, is, is good is this huge list. And it, it's the thing that always bothers me about arguments against these things, that they, they tend to uh, assume that the goal here is entirely um, uh, entirely exaggerated morals, not even like an appropriate, you know, this is a good thing to help with, but just trying to, you know, show how good you are or something, when really this is just a way to make better games. And, and in role-playing games, I think the, the area that this is still being discussed in, and I'm curious to see where it leads, is um, in social safety mechanisms for for topics that can be uncomfortable. Right. Uh, you know, some games uh, use the X card, or uh, some games just kind of mention, you know, this could be uncomfortable stuff. What do you, how does your group, you know, talk with your group about that? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the there's still pushback on those things, um, and I think part of that is is just from people uh, needing to, to appreciate that this makes the game better for everybody. And I think part of it is still that design is evolving, which is um, actually my, my final point. We're still figuring it out. Uh, like, all of all of this design stuff that we're talking about here is uh, the product of, you know, uh, as I said in the beginning, maybe 50-ish years of time in this kind of new space that got carved out by 
Gygax and Artisan, um, as far as we know. I always hope that there's like some secret history that we'll figure out one day of <laughs> some other parallel design culture. But um, not that I, I have anything about Gygax and Artisan. I just think that it would be interesting to find out that there's uh, an entire other stream of design that, that we have missed and, you know, what what developed in that parallel stream. But the, the point being that we're role-playing games, um, despite having such a... Uh, kind of discernible origin have become such a, a, a broadly owned field. I don't want to say diverse because it's still mostly white guys, but there there are a lot of voices in the design and theory there, um, and we're we're still figuring it out because there isn't. Uh, you know, I, I kind of phrase that as figure it out, but we're, there isn't an end state here. Like game design is um, kind of like architecture or something. We're we're not going to solve architecture and have the, the one way to design all buildings going forward forever and ever done. Uh, we're, we're going to have different needs of people and we're going to have different needs of communities and we're going to have even some technological innovations that we figure out different ways to do things and we're going to keep on uh, coming up with new ways to think about this and that's really exciting. Yeah, it's, it speaks to it as an art form, right? Because that's, you know, that's the big reason why something like architecture is not going to end because a lot of it is an art form. Mm -hmm. And art forms are about ideas and about culture and about change. And so, you know, that those things are different over time. And one of the crazy things about role-playing game design is that we are an art form that is about um, interaction and about the interaction of a group of people, a small group of people, uh, one person with themselves in things like the beast or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of our art form is how can we make the social contract an explicit part of our rules with things like the X card or, or microscope at the beginning where you're allowed to say things are included or not included. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just a really crazy thing to explore as far as something that can be involved in a piece, a work that you can build and, and release to people. Uh, there's a... Uh, there's a theater production um, that occurs in a hotel where all of the different pieces are being presented in various rooms of the hotel. And as an audience, you walk through as however you like. Mm -hmm. And you will go to this thing multiple times because there's no way to see the whole thing in one run because they're all happening at various times, and the actors will talk to you, I think, and all this kind of stuff. There's a number of those. There's uh, an immersive theater company here in Seattle. Uh, there you go. I, I've gone through their... Unfortunately, the only one that I've been through is their, the one that they did around Halloween of last year, which was very interesting for being immersive, but because it was a little bit more uh, kind of horror-oriented, it felt a little bit more like a, a haunted house. Um, I'd be curious to see something that was a little less, like shock and, and scare and a little more just explore it because there's um, a, a real famous one of these in New York City um, and then she fell that retells Alice in Wonderland but also talking about Lewis Carroll and his relationship to the real Alice all intertwined and all in you know different rooms that you end up in and um, and I think that you know these pushing pushing the edges of your art form and you know seeing seeing the things that were previously invisible to you about we can make rules that help people deal with uh, I'm just really uncomfortable with this situation. We can make rules that deal with uh, subjects that 
are really hard to handle. We can make rules that end a game in four hours that you will never play again, or that make you come up with content that is difficult to talk about, or that make you talk about things just to yourself for your own elucidation. Like, we can push all of these edges, uh, and, and as people continue to do that, and I get to read really cool games and hopefully play some of them, I'm just really excited. Yeah, I, I think there's a really interesting space here because um, role-playing games, uh, maybe more so than, than some other types of games, have such uh, a number of uh, kind of driving theories behind them. Um, so a, a comparison that I, I think is interesting here is um, comparing to like Magic the Gathering, where uh, if you want to talk about the theory of Magic the Gathering, there is really kind of one voice. That's Mark Rosewater, who is uh, the, the lead designer. Of, yeah, yeah, lead designer of Magic. And uh, his theories about Magic, uh, which kind of by default become most collectible card games with the possible exception of a few of Fantasy Flight's living card games. But, you know, there's not a whole lot of uh, other games that have been that successful out there. Um, so his theories about how to design uh, a collectible card game are, are kind of it, more or less. Uh, you know, there's, there's some dissenting voices. I'm sure there's some people who doubt him. But uh, that really is how you design a collectible card game. You, you read Mo Mark Rosewater, and then uh, you maybe diverge on a few things, but kind of good luck with that. Um, whereas in the role-playing game field, there's there's so much more debate and so many more ways that you can tackle it and so many more people with their, their differing ways of doing it that creates a really interesting uh, kind of movement forward. I mean, not to say that Magic isn't moving forward. They've made some interesting design changes and stuff, but they all originate so much from the kind of same theoretical basis, whereas with all these competing uh, theories or, or ethoses of design, like you, you keep on seeing people uh, approach something in a, a somewhat new direction. Um, and I'm excited to see that keep on going. I'm, I'm excited to kind of be obsolete. I mean, someday we're, we're going to be so out of touch, uh, that, that we can't do this podcast anymore. You know, we're, uh, we, we can keep up with everything now, but how long until there's another generation that, that completely rethinks role playing again? Uh, how, how long until Vincent Baker is, is not the, Oh, he, he's reinventing role playing, but the, the, old person that you're rebelling against. Um, I, I can't think that it'll be that long, really, given the, the time scale that the number of uh, kind of generations of changes of theories that uh, RPG design has already been through in, in under 50 years of, of functional widespread role playing. Um, with that much time and that many generations, it can't be that long until some of the voices that currently seem seem new and innovative are the thing that we're rebelling against, or, or I'm the thing, or we're the thing that people are, are tearing down and saying that's, that's a horrible idea. <laughs> so I think that that's it. That, yeah. That's my three points. Uh, the infinite theories theory, uh, that, that the great thing about theory is how many there are and how many we can interchange. The, uh, the audience is bigger. The, the idea that uh, theory intersects with audience and that by uh, understanding theory as a way to design for an audience uh, and that audience then leading to new theories to address the audience, that we, we grow 
gaming, we grow ideas, and coincidentally, we get more gamers, which is, is not necessarily my goal, but it's cool. And then we're still figuring it out. All this theory stuff is... Uh, it's going to change, I hope. <laughs> if we stagnate here, it's going to be kind of sad. It will be sad. One more thing millennials have killed, right? Uh, my, my number one being that RPG design is significantly and almost fundamentally different from any other kind of game design. And uh, springboard theory, uh, trust people to fill things in but help them to do so. And community community is so, so, so important. So that's, that's kind of it for episode 23. Uh, what have we learned about design? So... A few more things before we go. Uh, so we're going to be moving our hosting to uh, a new a new f- feed. Uh, feed, yes. Yeah. Uh, and so we're going to be doing that in the near future. Um, hopefully you won't even notice, but there's a chance that uh, your podcast client of choice will decide that you know all our episodes are new again or something. Um, so Feel free to listen to them all. Yeah, re-listen to all of them. Tell us all the things we got wrong. Uh, <laughs> if you see anything weird, please please let us know. We'll, we'll do our best to correct it. There may be some things that we, we can't get to, but in the long run, this will help us uh, do more podcasting and, and keep our, our site in a better state. Um, and uh, we, if you want to know when that migration happens, just so you can and keep up on it, uh, we'll, we'll post to Twitter and G Plus and Facebook to let you know, hey, the new site's live, and um, go make sure that your your podcast client hasn't gone crazy. Yeah, we're, we're going to try and kind of reinvest uh, in another question, keep it growing, keep it getting better. If you've got, if you've got ideas on how to do that or, or what you want us to talk about, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we now follow uh, the Twitter account much better than we used to. So, And, and we're going to continue to try and uh, make sure that our other venues, uh, Facebook and G+, we're, we're on those as well. And if you ever want to uh, make sure that we see something, you can always go to us directly. We'll, we'll try to make totally. sure that we're keeping up on our you know, official brand accounts or whatever, but you can always find us. We're, we're everywhere. Um, so another question is Adam Blinkensop and Sage Latora. You can find us on Twitter at AQ Podcast or by searching for Another Question on Google Plus or Facebook. Our website, otherquestion.com, has all our old episodes plus links to all the games we mentioned in each episode and uh, maybe some other bonus material you'll have to check and oh, find out. Dangerous. If you'd like to support us, you can send us a question, leave us a review, share this episode, like us, and subscribe. 